This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. So how's it going? It's going okay. Yeah? It's, it's a long week. Yeah. For for our listeners, Matt looks very frazzled. <laughs> That's because the Venture Brother episode took a lot out of me. Yeah. Maybe. It was a weird week of just listening to fish and watching the Venture Brothers. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's that cat's out of the bag. I mean, we talked about it at the end of the last episode, but we are going to be discussing fish, which is uh, looms large over pop culture in the sense that I feel like a lot of people have an opinion about fish despite having never listened to fish, myself included, <laughs> which is why we're doing this. Last time we were talking about streaming versus watching things week to week. Or, or binging specifically. Yeah, yeah, binging. So I'm curious how that... You know, the digital landscape has kind of changed things with media, whether it's movies or TV. I'm curious about what your musical listening habits are now. You know, I, I use Spotify um, most of the time when I'm listening to music. Uh-huh. Music music and I have this weird... Music and I? Is that... Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. Ignore that third voice. <laughs> We're not ready for him yet. That's what I chime in. <laughs> yep, nope, that's perfect English. Nice grammar. All right, I'm out. <laughs> All right, yep. Uh, that's Chris. We'll get to him in a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I listen mostly to Spotify. Uh, my relationship with music has always been weird. Uh, I I like music because I'm, I'm not a monster, <laughs> but I've never, um, you know, I've never been a music guy. I've had friends who would have this sort of encyclopedic knowledge and... and be able to tell you, uh, you know, who influenced this band and then like kind of pee back off of that and, and really go down some rabbit holes. But I never gravitated to music like that. So I feel like even though I'm using something like Spotify and technically have uh, all the new music coming out at my disposal, I really don't engage with it a lot. Do you keep up with any modern stuff? Like no, not Like weekly re- releases or anything no, like that? No, not really. Yeah. Yeah. There are like multiple music websites that every Friday they'll put like a list of like, these are the five to seven releases you should listen to. And I'll go through those every week and be like, oh, that sounds interesting, that sounds interesting. And then I'll go to my phone or whatever and I'll I'll download it right away. Yeah. I've now found myself in a position where I have this extensive catalog of music on my phone and some of it I'm just like, I don't know what that is. And there's so much of it. Like it's just, and I think that's the issue. We were kind of talking about this last time of how there's so much of it, and so it's hard to keep track. And and so sometimes at the end of the year, I know NPR will do their, um, what's the name of that podcast? All Songs Considered? Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the year, they'll do kind of like, hey, this is our favorites from the year, and they'll play stuff. And sometimes I'm like, I download that. I never listened to this, and I love this. And then I'll go back, and I'll kind of fill things in. The thing for me is like, it's, it's how do you keep up with all this stuff? I don't know. And like, there's no reason for me not to. Like, I should be doing that. I do that with, you know, uh, I pay attention to movies that are coming out, new TV shows. And every once in a while, I will stumble on something and be like, why haven't I been listening to this? You know, why, did, why wasn't I listening to this sooner? And yeah. it's just because I don't, I'm never really actively thinking about it. I know for me, sometimes I need something else to connect to it. Sure. A good example of that is I bought Sharon Van Etten's uh, not her recent album, but the album prior. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I like this. Uh, but I didn't really listen to it too much. And then she did a performance on Twin Peaks um, season three. And I was like, oh, okay. 
I get this now. And then I got, became obsessed with that album and her new album came out and I, I love the new album so much. So sometimes I need that connective thing, like whether it appears in a, a on a TV show or a movie. Sometimes it's hard to hear things in a vacuum. Sure. You know, or, or just to have people throwing recommendations at you. But I do have all these lists and sometimes it's just, it's the balance of listening to music, listening to podcasts, watching movies, reading. Yeah, and, and you know, it's certainly uh, a testament to terrestrial radio, uh, the fact that our, our our lone alternative rock and roll station was sold to <laughs> Christian radio. Yeah. Um, seriously, like, put a, a, a sort of dam in front of any kind of uh, feed I had to new music. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's let the cat out of the bag because I'd like to know our guest's uh, uh, he's champing uh, at the bit opi- over here. opinion on this because I know... <laughs> Ew, gross. <laughs> no, don't actually champ on Mike. I know he also has his own probably insane methods for keeping up with things and, and extensive lists. But we're joined today w- with our first official guest by uh, Chris Knott. Hey, what of, an honor. What of, an honor. Of, <laughs> and, 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 he's, and he died. He just, that, that's that was short-lived. Yeah. Uh, of wheeze talking wheeze to thee. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever said that aloud? Uh, I've tried. It's I a have. Mouthful. I've told people to listen oh, to it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. I'm like, hey, do you like Weezer? Uh, you should listen to this podcast <laughs> as extensively yeah. and yeah. exclusively. If you've got 74 Weezer. hours to spare. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you got three hours right now. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, thank you for having yeah. uh, me. This is awesome. Thanks for thanks for joining us. For sure. Yeah. So, tell me, like, yeah. how are you keeping up with music, or are you keeping up with music? Yeah, absolutely. What I do, I have Spotify. Uh, though I got Apple Music. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Amazon Prime Music to help and make playlists for you uh, for this episode. But uh, and what I what I do is similar to you. I I actually get an email still from allmusic.com. Oh, all music yes. still exists. Yes. And so I get an email of new releases every week, you know, that they just send out. I've been getting it for literally a decade. I don't even know, maybe more. And I look through and I go, oh, good. I know that artist. They have something new. This is wonderful. And then I look through and go, that's nice artwork. Like, let me listen to that. Because with Spotify, you can just listen to a song yeah and if i like it what i do is put it on a playlist called 2019 albums all yeah and i'll just put all the records that interest me on that playlist and what i'll do is listen to that playlist on shuffle i mean if there's something specific like the new kevin morby record the new bill callahan record like sharon van etten like people who i already like then boom i'm already listening to you and i'm saving you separately and then I'm putting you on there as well, because just to hear it in the context of this is 2019, and I've been doing that since 2013. So I have playlists from each year, and then what I'll do is then set aside selects, and you know, so it's like a whole process. Yeah, you know, as the music nerd that I am, as you will find out listening to <laughs> this conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> I did something similar, but I did it with the albums that I purchased. So I yeah. would have like, I remember that I've li- I've been in the, you know driving to weddings with you, and it yeah. was like this is the albums this year. This is the albums I bought this <laughs> right. year, and, and which was easier to keep track of because now again, like with the Amazon playlist, it's just right. And and then if I go through and I'm like I ha- I don't know what this is, and I've never listened to this, I'm like I got to delete it right. just because it's taking up space. Um, but I I've been trying to maintain the playlist of things like oh I know this is gonna go in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I want the new Mitski in there. I want right, the right. new Sharon Van Etten and the new National and all that stuff. So, but I also, I still purchase things when I love something. I'm right. gonna buy it on. You're final. good like that because when I'm at home, I only listen to records because. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> 
sorry, sorry. No, it's just nice to put a record on and, and to think about it in the sense of I know I have to flip it. Oh, I it's know an the artwork is there. Yeah, there's yeah. that there's that ritual to it. You yeah, most, exactly. you almost feel like I'm setting aside this isn't just on in the background. I'm I'm setting aside the time to engage with this right now. Yeah, it's funny. Every time I have to flip it though, Meg with without fail will be like, if only there was some way we could listen to the whole record without having <laughs> to flip it. That's so fun. That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, real funny. <laughs> but listen, you can't hear the dirt on the record. <laughs> no, it's funny because I got the soundtrack to the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer Once More with Feeling, which is the musical, the musical episode. One, right. And she was just like, oh, like, I know I've joked about this before, but I can I can hear I can hear things. Wow. Because she's like, I know this music so well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right. So, so take that. Yeah. You MP3 listening, but whatever. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, you really can't appreciate <laughs> that the. Life. <laughs> you really can't appreciate the the true audio fidelity of vinyl until you're listening to a teenage vampire killer sing about. <laughs> you gotta hear Geller on vinyl. That's what I always say. You gotta <laughs> hear true. Geller on vinyl. Yeah, no, it's Allison Hannigan, man, all day. Oh, d- <laughs> yeah. She's the worst singer. Oh, is she really? Yeah. Oh, it's really. But she's a great flautist. She has like. <laughs> <laughs> That that's true. She has like, I think three lines. In the <laughs> Fuck <whole>. you. <laughs> she has like three lines in the whole musical because she's so terrible. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, and even in interviews and stuff, she's like, "Oh yeah, I can't sing." Wasn't there an episode where, like, they were all living out their nightmares and like hers was to have to sing in front of people? I think so. Yeah, yeah. One of her lines is, "This line is mostly filler." It was just to give her a line in the group song. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. It's pretty great. Did but, she sing much in the How I Met Your Mother musical episode? Or is there a How I Met Your Mother musical episode? <laughs> they do. A, the, there's a whole season future. that there's a whole season that's a concept album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dark Side of the Mother. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wouldn't that She's, be Adam uh, Hart, Adam Hart mother? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. How I met your Adam Hart mother. Steve Strap cuts. in, folks. Yeah. And we're not even talking about fish yet. And this is intolerable. I guess ice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess we should start talking about fish. Yeah. So I guess before we have our uh, our Sherpa Chris talk <laughs> us through it, Matt, what were your what was your relationship with the band? Can I just or, say uh, I feel like I'm seeing the finet like so. I was so excited driving here today because I have no idea how either of you guys feel about the music of Fish. Oh, yeah. After these playlists. And I'm like, I legitimately can't wait to hear how you responded to this music. Chris sent me a text the other day. We were going back. We were, I was asking him some questions about some of the playlists or something. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm so excited to hear what, what your opinion is. And I was just like, I'm, well, I'm going to save it for Sunday. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, I, I, I just can't wait. Because oh. Matt and I have been making music together for yeah, 15 for, years, you yeah, know? quite a while now. And, and you know, this is a band that I've talked to you a lot about. I was like, you know, I think I think there's something there you would like. Oh, I'm sure. You know, but it was like, <laughs> but I'm not going to listen to them. <laughs> so it's nice that we have an excuse now to have yeah. this conversation I've been wanting to have with you for a long time. And we kind of do the same thing, too, sometimes. We'll, we'll sort of, like, check in and be like, oh, I, I'm, like, halfway through the, 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 the homework yeah. And I've yeah. got feelings, but I kind of want to sit on them let's, for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, let's not like... You hear that on Wee's Talking Wee's too, where I legitimately don't know what my co-host, Chris the Younger, yeah. thinks. And I'm like often shocked, or we find that we completely align. And I we know, like, I'm shocked. Yeah, 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 yeah seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sorry, I just no. wanted to chime in. Like That's how excited I am. I feel like I'm seeing nice. the, conclu- the finale of something that I've yeah. been watching a long time. Uh, so for me... The fish thing goes back to high school, mm-hmm. and there was this 
group of kind of they were the popular kids and they were all really into fish there's like this whole group of kids that were into jam bands although i don't know what they listen to beyond fish to be quite honest and i remember there was a kid in my i was in jazz ensemble uh playing drums and there was a bass player and i don't remember his name but he was really into it and he'd always tell me these things oh man you'd love them because of x y and z and all these things about how great they are as musicians and stuff and he was in a band that my band lost to in a battle of the bands at the high school and they were a quote unquote jam band and i just remember thinking they were awful (laughs) but they won um i can assure you they had nothing on hitler stole my potato (laughs) yeah that was the name of my band in high school (laughs) you didn't know that no yeah dude hitler stole my potato wow (laughs) yeah what was the thought process behind that it's really complicated and not worth <laughs> no kind of it. Well, sorry. let's do it uh, so I think wait were both of you in this band no no no, no. no. I, I, I'm excited to hear this story because I actually forget I mean parts of this are probably apocryphal uh, because it's just been told so many sure, times I mean, and yeah, there's so I many mean, people involved that's a good podcast name by the way probably apocryphal <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is yeah, yeah, actually, I, yeah. I mean the myth of Hitler stole my potato is just so big looms Dude, large we are on a trivial pursuit question wait what yeah you didn't know that? No. Yeah. What did you like? Someone in your high school go on to work at Hasbro? No. We're, it's a list of <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, lots of them probably. Um, it's a list of like these random shitty weird band names like Hitler stole my potato. I forget the other ones. What? What are you talking about? It's a great name. And then on the back it says, you know, like what are these? And in the back the answer is their band name. Are you name. serious? Yeah, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, Chris has it like framed. It's amazing. Chris was in Hitler. This is in a genus edition? I don't. <laughs> 90s edition? I don't remember. <laughs> no. I think he's it's over 10 years old. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Cuz it got on like a bunch of like weird band nameless. Wow. Oh yeah, those are always great. I always like when yeah. uh, AV Club does their annual yeah. breakdown of that. Yeah. But essentially I think there was like that movie Reality Bites mm-hmm. and I believe that Ethan Hawke's band was called Hey That's My Bike and I used to go around saying yeah I like potatoes as just like a non sequitur response to people sure and it got really my old, cousin used to say I like rice like what's with that what is yeah, that period of so then we started saying hey that's my potato and I'm not entirely sure how the Hitler got in there but that one wasn't me <laughs> Yeah. Wow. But anyway. Yes. So what would happen is we would play, and we were more of like a punk band, Nirvana influence, alternative kind of stuff. And people would come up to us and a lot of these fish kids and just absolutely make fun of us. And I remember specifically my friend Pete wearing a Weezer t-shirt and a kid with a fish t-shirt came up to him and just went, Weezer. And what? Yeah. What alternate universe did you go to where the fish fans were the cool, the cool kids? kids? I don't know. I I really don't know. They had the pot. Yeah, they did. Well, that the, my, that'll make you pretty cool. I'm pretty my, sure that's uh, all it was. The only my my sort of like introduction to fish was just the yeah like the dirtbags and the burnouts who uh, had a different fish or Grateful Dead T-shirt for every day of the week. Wore a lot of. Um, Hemp jewelry, mm-hmm. well, yeah. hemp hemp necklaces and some puka shells. Oh, absolutely! They clearly liked fish because they wore the shirts, but they never really talked about it. I think it was just—I don't know. I, I knew nothing about the music besides the fact that these these kids who just 
were kind of terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were always just so obnoxious. Yeah. And at least these this group that I came into. So Did I think, say that about Pink Floyd as well at the time? Yeah, like a lot of those, they were into a lot of classic yeah. rock and stuff, and they were all just kind of assholes, so it kind of <laughs> gave me this bad taste. And I was also, at that time, kind of rejecting a lot of these things because, you know, I was a stupid teenager, and I grew up in a household of classic rock and prog rock, and so it was at a point of just like, no, man, I'm going to do my own thing, and so I started listening to like a lot of punk bands, like Screeching Weasel and The Queers, I mean, and eventually you learn that that's all bullshit as well. So, like, anytime you're part of, like, this bigger fan base kind of thing, you you could kind of see it for what it is, whether it's, you know, the mythology around fish fans or punk rock kids, and you're just like, oh, this is all bullshit. Yeah, every every click comes with its own baggage. Yeah, exactly. So I got over that quickly and then came around to Pink Floyd, who was one of my favorites oh, yeah. now. And Yeah, well, those same kids in high school who were... Um, you know the the fish heads and the dead heads seemed to not go further than the wall or dark side of the moon and, yeah. and oh, yeah. the rest of pink floyd is so great yeah and oh like, yeah why why are we why are we stopping at the easy ones i don't know i think that's part of the problem not the problem with fish but part of the the thing that's difficult is this we've been doing these episodes about shows and comics that have like these crazy deep mythologies sometimes it feels like there's a hard entryway point and I think that's what yeah. I kind of discovered with Fish is that there's this crazy mythology around the band and, and looking at their websites and fan sites the way they talk about them is not like bands are normally talked about No, and I say this as a Radiohead fan and I know that Radiohead fans could be fanatical about their B-sides and their live shows but not to this extent where, the, where it seems like people don't care about their album output whatsoever so it's hard to just see that from a distance and be like well i love buying records i love listening to records from start to finish even though it seems like that's kind of sort of going away how do you go into something when even the fans just like yeah you don't need to listen to that man (laughs) but this is my favorite version of this and there's another fan like no this is my favorite version of this and so where do you start by this matt literally means the same song (laughs) yeah 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 exactly and i think that's what what worked about doing this is it kind of sat us down and Chris presented us this list of these things that you liked or these songs that you liked and was just like, you have to really just give this attention. And you shared with us an article by Steve Hyden, uh, formerly of AV Club and Grantland and now of Up Rocks. Up Rocks yeah. And he has his own podcast uh, called Celebration Rock, which is pretty great, Tony. I don't know if you've ever listened I have to not. It. Yeah, but it's worth checking out. But there's a quote from there that I, I, I thought was was kind of perfect, and it actually works for our whole podcast in a sense. And he said, in order to like fish, you must consciously decide to like fish, which I thought was kind of perfect for this because, like, not our job, but the whole purpose of this is to, like, give it the deep attention that it, so it needs to. And listening to fish continuously for the past few weeks you kind of like oh yeah okay i i understand this yeah yeah I, the the idea with this you know show on a macro level was to not just expose ourselves to uh, things we may have missed but also to maybe confront some preconceived notions we had about certain things i certainly don't dislike fish but i've 
confirmed that it's not for me. Um, <laughs> which now I'm 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 much more comfortable having a genuine opinion as opposed to just um, allowing myself to continue assuming what I had prior. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I just the idea of spouting off an opinion without having it based in anything is kind of obnoxious. Yeah, oh, and, sure. and I think this is such an easy band fan base a whole like subculture unto itself to take pot shots at right it's not like there's pet cemetery heads out there that you're like (laughs) man those guys really turned me off of that king work you know what i mean it's a whole culture and look and like vibe surrounding a band that yeah is definitely alienating you know and just to be clear to listeners because you you don't know me like i am not your typical fish fan no i've never smoked pot I've never done a drug in my life. I barely drink, you know, mm-hmm. like the occasional cigarette, sure. But to me, it's about music. Yeah. You know, to most people, it's about dreadlocks and hacky sacks and, you know what I mean? And so, Birkenstocks. And, and and we'll get to it, but um, I found the drugs did not help. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, that's good to know, right, people? I'm curious because you've been to fish shows. Sure. Uh, these stereotypes around fish fans, are they true in so- a sense or? It's funny. Uh, more so... In Fish 1.0, meaning, you know, at least from my experience, uh, seeing them in 1999 and 2000 before they kind of went on a hiatus, you definitely got that vibe then. But even still, there was the white hats, as you would call them, which is, you know, kind of like fratty dudes, like bros at shows because it was a good excuse to, like, go and get fucked up and, like, take your shirt off and, and mess around, which was also true of Grateful Dead shows into the 90s when they got really popular after Touch of Grey and that kind of thing in the late 80s. Now... All the fans that were like college kids in the 90s are like lawyers and financial people and like really established humans because the thing with fish people is they're generally educated, they're generally come from means, and they're generally like super nerdy. So like those kinds of things breed success like in life, like those kind of traits, you know, what you're born into. Most people are like from Northeast liberal colleges and kind of went into work that you would expect they're not necessarily artists they just happen to like be nerds with means so now that's what you see at fish shows is like a lot of like oh like 45 year old people wearing glasses and and like tucked in shirts you know i'm not saying that's everything because then there's party kids and there's definitely like this is the type of band that just will forever be breeding new fans it's an evergreen sort of band like all the great classic rock and nirvana and you know like there are those bands that are like they serve a role in someone's evolution as a human, and like fish could be one of those. Do you find that the audiences for modern shows are skewing older now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Older or like, you know, 16. Oh, it's wow. like someone's first show. Like I've been next to people, it's like their first show. Has it become a family thing? Yes. Wow. Yes, people bring their kids, like young kids, to shows. Because it is. Because now they. Son, here's your first doobie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think the Doobie Brothers have the same experience. (laughs) Wait till you hear Michael McDonald live. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they've been a band for 36 years and they've been in the public consciousness for, you know, close to 30 years at this point. I mean, I would say definitely since the mid 90s, so 25 years. This year's their 30th anniversary, right? Or at least of their first release? Oh, of Junta. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that may be true. See, that's how little I know about the uh, <laughs> about the recorded works. Sure, I just I I think that came up in something that I yeah, saw. it was I think it was recorded in maybe eighty seven, eighty eight. Maybe it was released in eighty nine. I mean, they weren't really signed at the time, so I think like maybe when they got signed to Elektra, they properly released it. So that's why the release date of that is kind of vague in my mind. Yeah. Oh, and let me let me say this, Tony. Like, 
you cannot like offend me about hating any of this. Like with fish, something I'm always consciously aware of is even if you like the spirit with which they make music and, and think they have chops and kind of like cool parts and stuff like I think the thing that people could like the least about fish is their music. Like, you know, like I like everything about them. I like the, I like what they do as a band, but like, I don't like the music they make with that intention, you know, which I totally get. And I'm not precious about it. It was hard making this list because I was like, so much of this is embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to give you guys a good kind of cross section of everything they do, but I left off some stuff that's legit embarrassing because I didn't want to alienate you. And I thought, let me show these guys like being just great, like my opinion of great. But even within there, sloppy, bad singing, questionable choices, self-indulgence. And that's within stuff I love. So I'm just saying there's always that awareness with fish. Sure. Yeah. And, and, um, so I took notes for, yeah. for the songs. Uh, the only thing I, the only thing I wrote for Fly Famous Mockingbird was nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because that piece was I ne- I hadn't listened to that in a really long time, and I was like, wow, I forgot how good this is. <laughs> so that just shows. I think it is the most I guess for lack of a better word egregious example of fish coming off as an inside joke that you're not in on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that is so out of context, too. And that's a song we should probably talk about more because it speaks to something really important to their legacy. But uh, I totally get it. It's like, yeah, I don't need this from a rock band. What are they doing? Right. Why is he talking right now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I had some questions for you. How dare you? (laughs) Who do you think you are? No. I was actually thinking about that. Who do I think I am? Um, How am I not myself? We've sort of talked about this, but Chris, why Fish? Make your case for Fish. Yeah, Fish is one of those bands that that kind of got under my skin at the absolute right time. You know, I was 15 years old. It was the late 90s. I had older friends. This is a typical thing of Fish fans. It's like, oh, oh, man, you got to hear this, you know? And I didn't even have, like, good Fish head friends. I just had friends who happened to listen to Fish, and they had, like, a live one and... Uh, Lawn Boy, their like second record. And it was like, all right, yeah, that's okay. I remember saying to them early on, like, I don't know, they don't have a lot of energy. You know, like, it's just kind of like low key. And at that time, I was into prog rock. I was into jazz. I was into jazz fusion. I liked chops. And the records don't necessarily show the chops end of fish, you know. But I happened to see them when I was 16 in 1999 for the first time. I was excited to see them, but I didn't know a lot of their music. I went with one of these older friends and, um, it was a letdown. It actually wasn't great, but there was a couple things in that show that I just said, all right, I got to pursue that. I got to find whatever that was and and go deeper into that. And then for Christmas that year, I bought Hampton Comes Alive, uh, like with a gift, a gift card for Newberry Comics. Any and, relation to Frampton Comes Alive? Well, they recorded at Hampton Coliseum in Virginia, which I actually had the pleasure of visiting and seeing them at uh, last fall in the uh, fall of 2018, because this, this was the record. It's a six CD. It's two shows, basically, in their entirety that were released as a box set. And you could imagine that's just so many hours of fish music and it was live and it was a show. So I got the real sense of, yeah, all right, I get it. And I just got obsessed with that. So when they embarked on a summer tour the next year, I was like, I'm there. Like, and so I went to a couple shows and again in the fall and then they went on hiatus, but they were already deep into me. I loved the progressive rock elements. I loved the mythology. I love that they were a modern band that I could see. Right. Like not Pink Floyd or, you know what I mean? These old bands that I really love, the Beatles, you know, but I could see them and be part of the myth. 
Uh, sorry, uh, the B E A T L E S. See, common oh, misconception. Yeah, yeah. I could see you spelling it with two E's. They were they were a big influence on the monkeys. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But really, the monkeys used two E's, and the Beatles didn't. Anyway, <laughs> and so really, they just spoke to a lot of what I loved about music. But it was more than anything the depth. I could go so deep with this band. There was always an endless font of writing about them, of shows that were available. I would, like, trade for CDRs of shows. I, I wasn't on the tape scene. You know, I was a little post-tape because it was the late 90s. But It must be easier to be a Fish fan now because much easier. you can go to all these websites and there's yeah. just all these instructions about sharing shows and yep. finding shows. And even Fish themselves release all these live shows now. Yep. Like official recordings. Every show. That's insane. Every show, the night that they're played, you can download it. Does that ever overwhelm you, though? Yeah. But what's fun is when Fish is on tour, it's like a sports season. You check the set list is coming in on Twitter song by song. Uh, if you, if it seems like a great show, great, I'm downloading that. You know, or I'm listening to an audience recording. There's a website called fish.od, Fish On Demand. And literally every show ever is available for streaming there. And it's like fan run. And we're talking thousands of shows. Yeah. And so, and even the most modern ones, it's generally audience recordings. Where do it's you start? Legal. You start by, you know, reading podcasts, talking to friends, whatever. Oh, you haven't heard this? You know, because there's this mythology of certain shows in my mind that, like, I could not get my hands on in the 90s when I was first becoming a fan. And uh, so now it's just, wow, I could literally listen to anything. And it almost makes it less special. It, you know, truly in a way, but at least I can say, oh, I never did hear that version of Split Open and Melt. I'm going to throw that on right now. This is great, you know? So things point you in the right direction. The nice thing is you can pursue it. And so just the depth of their, as you say, mythology, and they actually have a mythology like surrounding them and that they have kind of perpetrated themselves or perpetuated them. They perpetrated it if you don't like it, and they perpetuated it if you do. And uh, yeah, so why fish? They checked a lot of boxes at the right time, and then I've just hung in there. And they still do enough that I like, but if I heard them now, I wouldn't love them. That was a good, good, thorough answer. That was. I'm convinced. All right, that's it. <laughs> See you guys next week. Thanks for having me. So you shared two playlists with us. Yes. Each uh, over an hour. Yeah, about an hour and ten minutes. Can you talk about the difference between the two playlists? Yeah. And also, did you actively choose the order to give it a proper flow? To some degree, yes. Yeah. I, I tried to put songs in a slot where they typically are placed, openers versus you know closers and that kind of thing. Uh, I fudged it a lot, but the thing with the Fish show, they, for those of you who don't know, they generally play close to three-hour shows, really in truth like two and a half, 2.40, but with set break and everything. The first set is generally more song-oriented, less jammy. The second set is... They can go deep, really deep. And that's what you did on the set. I tried to, yeah. So I did set one, set two. But I didn't really go particularly songy in set one. I mean, relatively I did, but the songs are still long. They're there are just six songs as opposed to five. Exactly. They're just long songs. I did put on a pretty long version of Stash. But so, for instance, and we'll, and we'll get into that, but like, there are certain songs that show opener, like, or I should say tour openers. You go, we're probably going to get a first set. Stash, for instance, Wolfman's Brother, these kind of songs that's like, that's they kind of that's their first jam of the tour kind of thing. So I wanted to kind of represent that, you know, and then they will generally do a deep jam and then maybe do something that 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 sits them even deeper into into a darkness or groove and then come out of it with some major key thing. The Dead also structured their second sets in this way. And generally with The Dead, their first sets were just songs. They never jammed to the first set. Like it was really rare that they jammed to the first set because they said we were just finding our sound, getting used to the stage, getting used to the like it's just we weren't comfortable to 
dig too deep. Fish will like sometimes open with a huge jam. Like some of their best shows ever, just like they come out and play like a 17 minute version of Emotional Rescue by Rolling Stones. And you're like, wow, where'd that come from? You know, it's just one of the things. So I tried to structure the two lists around that. Do you think their main similarity to Grateful Dead is the jam? Because listening to this, I didn't think they sounded like the dead. No. Because I think the dead is borrowing from folk and Americana and a little bit of jazz. Mm -hmm. But they're a little more, they're like a laid back kind of band. Definitely. And Fish, at least the stuff that you shared with Mm -hmm. us felt closer to prog rock to me. Definitely. At least some of these songs. The touchstones, the the reference points for Trey Anastasia, who's the guitarist and singer and primary songwriter, and I would say composer, a lot of these songs are composed, and then they have open segments for jamming. Progressive rock, he loved King Crimson, he loved Genesis, like Peter Gabriel era Genesis, that was like his stuff. Classic rock, of course, Jimi Hendrix, and then Talking Heads in the 80s, Brian Eno, David Bowie. Those artists, that's where the music came from. Oh, and Frank Zappa. Oh, yeah. Frank Zappa was a huge influence on these guys early on. What's funny is since Fish has gotten back together in 2009, so for the past 10 years, their music is much more deady now because they're more mature. They write less complex music and they tend to just kind of sit more into a deeper pocket. Major key, lilting, harmonies, just tunes. But they stopped the drugs. They stopped drugs and they sounded more like the dead. That's never happened anywhere else in the history of man. (laughs) Before we keep going, there is a clip from... Futurama that I wanted to play that sort of uh, establishes my my sort of intimidation of the 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 long runtime for some of these tracks. So this episode uh, features Bender on tour with Beck. It's a good one. Thank you. That song doesn't usually last three hours, but we got into a serious thing, and then I forgot how it ended. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was actually Beck, right? That was Beck, yeah. yeah. I And I think that happens. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. <laughs> All right, let, so let's get into these set lists Sounds that great. you shared. So the first song is called The Curtain. The recording is from September 14th, 1999 at Boise State University Pavilion. Classic show. When you're making these selections where you're just like, oh man, I have to get the version of the curtain from Boise, Idaho in 1999? Or did you just kind of like... Uh, for for the song, so like this is not a jam vehicle particularly. Sure. Uh, at least in this iteration. For the songs, I literally listened to every version available on Amazon Prime Music and chose the one that I thought was sounded the best or was the tightest. <laughs> you know, for the jams, I did target specific versions. Yeah. Uh, it was surprising to me that the best curtain, in my opinion, was from 1999, which was a notoriously drugged out and sloppy year. But I thought they actually played it and sang it pretty well. So, but there is the potential for some fish fan to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Not about the curtain, but yes. Okay. Oh, definitely. Like, and I will definitely like <laughs> probably point that out. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a lot of division in the fish fandom or no? Unanimous opinions are hard to come by in the fish community for sure. And there's a lot of like mean nerds out there who have very strong opinions. No. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Mean nerds? Mean nerds. Tony as, and I as know a, nothing about as that. As a Star Wars fan, I cannot imagine <laughs> what that is like. This is essentially the musical equivalent. I really can't think of another band. I mean, you kind of touched upon it earlier. Maybe Radiohead. Yeah. Like, where, like, the fans feel more strongly and, like, angrily strongly about- I don't know, man. Have you seen anyone say anything negative about Beyonce on Twitter? Oh, it is a shit show. Oh, because of the- you just the defenders. Can, you cannot say anything right, about right. Beyonce. I mean, you shouldn't. Well, she's point. a national treasure. She is a national treasure. Not unlike 
Trey Anastasio. He seems like, he seems like a, a sweet dude. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually a new documentary that uh, just debuted at Tribeca about Trey. It's called Between Me and My Mind. So the curtain, the curtain. Back to the curtain. Yeah, uh, I like this song. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, cool song, right? I think it sounds a lot like Yes. Very Yesy. In fact, not particularly fishy in the grand scheme. Trey would often say like, yeah, it's like one of the least fishy songs. Every note here is composed and transcribed like for every instrument. He would write scores at this point. He has a lot of collaborators. Trey generally does not write his own lyrics or at least for the bulk of the early fish. Is someone outside of the band wrote their lyrics? Yes, yes. It's an old dear friend of Trey's from like middle school named Tom Marshall and he's their primary lyricist. Much like Jerry Garcia had Robert Hunter. You know, like, it's just one of the things. Trey does write lyrics. In fact, he's written some great lyrics. He's written some terrible lyrics. This is a song where uh, it really has a different spirit. You see, it's, like, weirdly biblical. And um, and musically, yes, it is one of the more traditionally prog things. But I love it. I think the harmonies are great. I love how the music develops. Like, it's got a vibe. Yeah. I like the kind of swirling organ kind of thing. Yeah. Again, it's very... Even with the harmonies, the way it kind of drops out and stuff, I was like, oh, this sounds just like yes. That is early 70s, Without yes. the soaring kind of high voice right. and or the uh, new agey kind of right. fantasy elements that uh, yes brought to their music. wasn't I think if you had picked a more alienating song to start it would have been a, a very long couple of hours <laughs> uh, but no this really this kind of holds your hand you get a sense of, of sort of what you're getting into the potential for what's next it's sort of in a language of music that was easy for me to get my head around and yeah and it's one of their oldest songs that they still play it's from 1987 uh, so it really, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. And when they broke up in 2004, obviously they're back together, but they broke up and it felt like a breakup. And they played one last festival up in uh, up in Vermont. At a, a, it was called Coventry, and it was terrible. The weather was terrible. The traffic was terrible. The band was terrible. It's funny because it just feels like another song. And again, it's not really a big jam vehicle or anything, but it's just a great song. And I think the curtain, I think just the curtain dropping on the band. So obviously it is significant to them just being an old song and and filling that role at that show, which is just a devastating show. I like the the very ending too, where it kind of all starts to fizzle out. It's a little ambient. Yeah, I think they're probably segueing into something. I can't remember what. But it's interesting because the first few times I listened to this, it was while you know I just put it on and have it on in the background, responding to emails or doing work, and it would go right into the next song. And I did think that they were the same. Yeah, it was the same song. I partly seg- you did sequence that, that because it was ending on an A chord, and yeah. so I yeah. They do a lot of songs in A, though, so there's that. Yeah, so the next song is called Divided Sky, and that's from a performance in Chicago in 1994. Yeah, UIC Pavilion. So I think what this song really hammered home, and this was a, 
uh, uh, as Matt was saying, he, w- he was sort of listening to this while doing other things. I sat down to really like listen to it, but I was also playing Super Mario Odyssey on my Switch. It's only natural. You're 100% correct because the repetition and the grooves and like the key changes, I'm like, oh, this this feels like video game music. <laughs> it's it's an endless song that is like video game music is designed to sort of loop endlessly because there's, you know, unless there's a time limit or something, there's no saying, there's no knowing how long you're going to be stuck there. So it has to just keep, it's a perpetual motion machine. And I'm like, oh, this this kind of fits. This is going really nicely. Yeah, for me, it was almost having it on in the background and, and forgetting about it because I doing emails or editing photos or anything like that, I'd find myself just like really getting into the groove sure, and just being like, oh, okay, like this is consciously affecting me even though I, I'm doing other things. Mm-hmm. So that was my way in in a sense of just yeah. kind of having it there. It's intellectual music, but at a point it's visceral in the playing and the kind of spaces they get into. And this is one that the jam is really what would be considered a type one jam, meaning they have these different types of jams, type one, two, and three. But type one is really maintaining the form of the song, maintaining the chord progression, and just building off of that and almost just peaking energy and releasing. It's all just tension and release. But I think this song, Divided Sky, which was historically and is historically one of my favorite fish songs, pieces, whatever you want to say. It's, it's, this is a, a long song. This is like 15 minutes. How, how long is this version, Matt? Uh, 14. Yeah. And it just always is. Like, you know, there's, you will never find a version that's shorter than 12 and you probably won't find one longer than 16. It's just one of those songs. You know, it is, it is what it is. They'll just decide how hard to peak it at the end and, and how much space to take in the middle. Yeah. Cause they drop out. They do. Yeah. And then you kind of feel them. I mean, it's weird to, to listen to a recording, but you could tell that they're they're reacting yes. uh, to the audience. And I shared that Charlie Rose interview. Yeah. And what they do, uh, and, and we'll set that I up. I have that. Should we, you want to play it? Or? Yeah, yeah. And I got to point to one other night. We were at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, and uh, we were playing Divided Sky, and we got down to this quiet part where it gets silent. We're getting quieter and quieter, and then it became silence. And I had my eyes closed, and I could feel the crowd, and I started to, because... Improvising is you're trying to translate the what's out there already, the greater pattern of things. And sometimes it feels like it's coming through a hole. And you couldn't play a wrong note if you tried. You're just floating. And at that moment, we were in the middle of it, and I started to see these colors, like, I'm not kidding, floating around in the room. And I realized that I could almost, it was silent, but I could see what we were translating. And as soon as I could see them, I started improvising, but I didn't play anything. I did everything in the sense course of improvisation except the actual notes, and as soon as I did it, the whole place erupted. <gasps> it was like, <gasps> and it just tears started rolling down my face. And it was at that moment that I knew that it was truly bigger than me. So a lot happening. What a nerd. A lot, a lot. <laughs> He's passionate. Yeah. No, I, I say that affectionately. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the thing with this band. Much like a lot of the bands I love, these guys just love music. They just love music, you know? Like I said, like, and that's admirable in its own way, you know? We don't have to love the music they make with that love, but they love music and they love being a band.
How much in that little section is improviser and how much is that on the recording? Nothing in the notes or rhythms is improvised there. It's the articulation that's okay. improvised in the dynamics. Sure. Yep. The way that Trey is attacking the notes, that's where it'll change. You know, when you hear he's being very staccato there, that's very Trey on guitar. But the way the band's playing off of him is is just great. As we were listening to that, it was, it was like, that's just four guys who have played together a lot. And this is relatively early in their career. It felt like kind of the, the peak of their career, at least to that point in 1994. And it was definitely a musical peak of sorts, that night and that run in particular um, in Chicago. But, you know, they were just playing as one even on the composed parts. And that's what's really cool. This is a band that weirdly is sometimes terrible at the easy stuff and great at the hard stuff. You know, just like singing in tune, not always great at it. But like playing something like that, it's like no one, no rock band can play like that. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, you'd be hard pressed to find many who could play with that much articulation and nuance and dexterity. Yeah, there are these monster drum fills towards the back half of the song. Where yeah. It just goes around the whole kit. And they come at like these, he like foreshadows it a couple minutes before the ending of the song, does it once. And mm. then at the end, he does it like a few times in a row. Uh, yeah. It's pretty wild. Like there's just big monster fills. And that drummer is Fish. That's John Fishman. They call him Fish, F-I-S-H. Um, and his relationship with Trey, the guitarist, is really the foundation, I think, of the band. That's the core and then the bass, if you notice on these songs, like Mike Gordon, the bassist, like will often play off the beat as much as he plays on the beat. There are moments in these recordings, too, where he, I don't know if it's just because of the nature of these songs, but he feels the sloppiest. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny. He's gotten better, Yeah. too. Like, he's gotten better. And they've all, I would say everyone except Trey has gotten better, weirdly enough, as musicians. Trey has actually lost some of his dexterity for whatever reason. I mean, he's like in his mid-50s now, and at that time he was, you know, probably 28 and just like living it up and playing hours every day. This band was notorious practicers. They would practice six hours a day. When they weren't on tour, they were like, you know, basically like 10 to 4 every day they were having band practice. Yeah, every yeah. day. Like, that's how you get to play like that. Do you like this one, Tony? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't really have any strong opinions yeah. on this one. Uh, like I said, it sort of uh, really nicely sort of fit into the background while I was um, stomping on Goombas and collecting power moons. You really shouldn't call. You were on Federal Hill? Wow, yeah. come on, man. <laughs> That's pretty racist, Tony. <laughs> is, is it weird that Nintendo hasn't, like, uh, backpedaled that one? Because no the Goombas are, aren't Italian in the game, right? No. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Don't look at me. I don't. <laughs> you, you're the one who brought it up. <laughs> don't look at me. Don't look at me. I didn't make Mario. Next song. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say that quieter. Okay, let's that, go on. To, let's that, move on to the next song. That peaked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next song is called Stash, and it is from 1998. Yep, this April 2nd. Yeah, this was from Nassau Coliseum oh. in Long Island. So Sorry. this one I really liked. At the same time, really 
didn't. I think this is this is a great example of the music is great. Definitely. Um, the the riff from two thirty to three thirty I thought was excellent, and the the lyrics are goofy, but I think for me and this sort of tr- this sort of carry through f- through all of it is um I can't I can't get into Trey's voice. It doesn't seem like there's a lot there, and I think um it, it's always, it's always kind of flat. There's, there's not a whole lot of emotional range there, at least not in what we listen to. It seems like these are the type of guys that got together that were good musicians, had similar interests, and they're like, well, I guess I guess I'll guess sing. Sure. Yeah, He was. De- it, it feels like he was the singer by default. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, there are several shortcomings of these lists. One is that I didn't represent the other singers, because they all sing lead. I only represented one other, and it's Fishman, the drummer, who sings the Talking Heads cover that we'll talk about. Like... Other than that, it's all Trey, and he is—he sings most of the songs. Don't get me wrong, but he arguably doesn't have the best voice in the band. Some people would say probably Paige on on keys, who sings all the high harmonies. He probably has the most like on key voice, but I don't know if he has a voice. Kind of like Mike Mills from REM, mm-hmm. and Mills would say that himself. He's like, "I'm a really good harmonizer. I have good pitch. I don't know if you'd want to hear a whole record of me." Like, if I was the singer of R.E.M., we wouldn't have been that successful. You know what I mean? Even though he's totally a fine singer, arguably a better technical singer than Stipe. Um, Trey has gotten better as a singer. On record, he can sing really quite well. But I would agree with you completely. Uh, these live recordings don't represent a strong suit of the band with regards to singing. With the exception, I think, of uh, a song I think we're going to hear next, Life Boy, where there's a lot of humanity and vulnerability in the voice. And that's nice to hear because he's by nature like kind of a vulnerable singer. These are not strong-voiced men. But when they combine their voices, it's really quite powerful, as we heard on the curtain. Yeah. And funnily, as four guys from Vermont who can't sing, like, in their shows, they regularly sing barbershop quartet music. They will stand at the front of the stage around one mic, blow into a pitch pipe, and sing completely a cappella. Traditional arrangements, they've done a version of Space Oddity, which was amazing. Like someone did a really good arrangement for them, and and uh, they've been playing that since Bowie's death, which is amazing. I'm assuming that's the reason they do that is partly to become better. Yes, singers. because they were so dedicated to getting better, you yeah. know. And they started doing that, yeah, in the early uh, '90s, and it and it became kind of like a great way to open or close a set, like, like, like Weezer's been doing. Yeah, Weezer's been doing it right. When I saw them in Albany, and they've been doing it all tour. Tony, uh, how do you feel about Weezer? Um. Hmm. Wait, is this an episode of Weez Talking Weez? Oh, Disney? stop Whoa. that! <laughs> this is Chris, <laughs> and this is not Chris. I don't. And this is Chris. Not I. Uh, oh, I get it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Weezer's another band that I I know people have very strong opinions about, and uh, you know I I think it seems like it's easy to dunk on Weezer. I really haven't paid much attention. Fittingly so. Post. Uh, I don't know, maybe green. So I'm just, I'm just sort of out of step with what they've been up to. I did listen to the cover album they put out. Um, <laughs> Strong record. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just uh, tell me this: How do you feel about Weezer podcasts? Uh, well, when I've got the time, they're they're quite good. No, I I, I did I did listen to um, I listened to the episodes where I knew the albums. Yeah, right. Uh, sure. and, and I think uh, I would certainly like to, from there, maybe catch up on some of the stuff I missed and, and go back and listen. From I, our statistics, I would say, you and everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing you got a big spike for Blue and Pinkerton. You know it. Yeah. Not uh, for Hurley? Hurley took so long to like catch up with the... It's not even... It's still not close. It's yeah. still our most 
it's still our least listened to album episode still and we released it like six months ago yeah they're a fascinating band to me and i keep up with them because i like the story around them and i just think i'm every time i listen to a new weezer record i'm like why why are you doing this and i that endlessly wait are you asking yourself or weezer no weezer okay yeah yeah it's just strange i thought he was asking himself yeah (laughs) i am both (laughs) what i was i was trying to think of how we could uh foist our concept on chris's podcast uh but it looks like there's there's nowhere you're able to get the pilot for the TV show that Rivers produced based on his uh, his his experience going to Harvard after Blue Cancer. It's oh, not yeah. available. It's true. Nowhere. Yeah. Huh? It's just in the vaults. Wow. Yeah. Because um, I thought that would have been a lot of fun. That would yeah. be a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, I don't know. That's a deep pull. Yes. Yeah, so if, if there's anybody uh, willing to do some some uh, you know corporate espionage for us who wants to yeah. <laughs> hack maybe another whatever. Sony hack <laughs> yeah sure if you're listening North Korea or Russia, Russia. <laughs> uh, yeah why not hey you know the floodgates are open on all sorts of uh, malfeasance these days so let's get into Stash which is the third song so the beginning of this song that's kind of how I pictured this band that's what I assumed it, they would sound like oh yeah that's noodling 101 yeah it's kind of like that slinky kind of arpeggiated uh, staccato guitar kind of mm-hmm. stuff it has this weird sort of noir vibe yeah because of the of. minor key yeah. yeah and the nature of uh, the harmony yeah. I'm not crazy about this whole intro but yeah. once it kind of they lock into a riff and then after that the band kind of it almost becomes like kraut rock they kind of just like yeah. settle into this groove and it gets noisy and then I love it it's yeah. It's a pretty wild jam. I'm Not gonna... a traditional jam from this song, too, yeah. I should say. And there is, I think, despite everything I said about the vocals, I think this song does have the vocal highlight for me of oh, the really? whole thing is oh. when when they all sort of come in for the I get the O's. Yeah. Um, Almost like, like an... oh, I, oh, wow, this song needs that energy throughout. Smith on a dogmatic grand fish, Marcus Stu, police in the corner, gunning for you. Apple toast bed, heated for like a rat. Laugh when they shoot you, say, please don't do that. The drove with smilers from the bar. The solar garlic starts to rot. For the fullest my life I saw. Maybe so, maybe so. I love anything that kind of locks into one thing, mm-hmm. stays on it, does slight variations, and then kind of devolves into noise and chaos. That's like my ideal. Then you'll love a couple of these jams. Yeah. I mean, that moment in particular, oh. I just love noisy kind of things where you kind of get lost in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the, the chaos sort of loses me. And then once they sort of get through that, uh, that yeah, the, the song kind of wins me back, but um, what well, I, uh, also too um, the the lyrics here are very goofy, but sort of scratches that itch. Uh, I I really like Ween. Yeah. And, oh, um, big big overlap here. Oh, absolutely. And that and this sort of reminds me of how 
sort of there is that Venn diagram with with these two bands and also with Primus. And it wasn't until not another too long, big overlap. Not too long ago, I realized having loved Ween and Primus for a long time that I've always been dangerously close to jam band territory. Oh, you're knocking on the door, bro. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Um, well, you know that Les has a band with Trey. Oh, right, yeah. Called Oysterhead, mm-hmm. and the drummer is Stuart Copeland from The Police. Yeah, I like two-thirds of that band a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and uh, I know- Sorry, Stuart. I, <laughs> uh, and I know that Roses Are Free is a, is a pretty regular fish staple. Yes, and in fact, on this tour, so this is from April of 98, something called the Island Tour. They played four shows, two shows in Long Island, two shows right down the road here in Providence in Rhode Island. And that's one of the best four show runs they've ever done. And they do an epic uh, version of Roses Are Free in Nassau. That's just one of their most significant and universally beloved jams ever. So yeah, that's a big song and, and most fish fans are Ween fans for sure. Sure, and yeah, and the the fan base too is very similar with um, in terms of, you know, there's that mythology that Ween has with certain songs like the, the Stallion saga uh, stuff like that and and their fans are just as dedicated and online constantly trading files right um, you know meticulously chronicling their 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 live performances and see they're a band I wish I knew more about because I don't I actually don't know a lot of ween same I like everything they again I like everything they do as a band except maybe their songs you know <laughs> but uh, I, I think I need to hear more truly same yeah. same same oh, planting seeds for future episodes look at that so the next song is Life Boy. Life Boy. And that was recorded in 1996 uh, at Deer Creek Music Center, Noblesville, Indiana. Indiana. This was part of a Mike's Groove, which is something they do. They have a song called Mike's Song uh-huh. and a song called Weekapaw Groove, another Rhode Island reference uh, from uh, when they were just passing through town here in the late 80s, I believe. It's just, oh, Weekapaw, that's a cool name, so Weekapaw Groove. And what they'll do is often a sandwich that Mike song and then into something or some things and then wrapping up with Weekapog Groove. And so uh, this was in the sandwich this particular night. This song feels the most songy. Yes. Like it's uh, it doesn't have like extensive jam sections yeah. or anything like that. Uh, and has the most, uh, you know, it has... Coherence. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. guess so. You shared some studio recordings and I, and I listened to as well. And the runtime of this song aligns pretty... Closely to the the studio version. Yeah, I noticed that in the in the live version, it's just kind of a true representation. It's kind of a long song as written, like close to six minutes. I would think the studio version is, even. But uh, yeah, they don't do much with it. They just kind of perform it, and it's not a song they play often. They almost never play it. It's a little on the nose. It is uh, lyrically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, God never listens to what I say. So very hard. Uh, <laughs> you don't get a refund if you overpay. Overpray. Sorry, yeah, overpray. yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like a rough lyric, like, yeah. you know. But uh, for Fish, in especially at this time, early 90s, Fish. Now, this was recorded in 96, but it's on an album that came out in 94 uh, and was, I believe, written in 93. It was actually written over the phone with Trey and his collaborator. Trey was, like, on a family vacation. He had this thing going, and he's going, I need a line. Uh, what would rhyme with this? Uh, what do you got, Tom? And he's, they're like, going, he's like, go to a payphone, like, in the Bahamas or something. Uh, but I, I love the delicateness of the performance. The whole band is really quite delicate, and it shows that they can hold back when they need to. You know, not that they played this right out of stash, but hearing this so near something so cacophonous, as we just heard, it's like, oh, cool, there's just so many different colors that these guys can paint with. It's not showy, and it, there's not. it's not a, a sort of exercise for, you know, long-form, freewheeling improvisation. It's, it's really, like, this is, we're here to 
do this one thing and we're going to kind of take a step back, bring the energy down a bit. And uh, I, I imagine that seeing them live, you kind of need those peaks and valleys yeah. too because I don't know how you could sustain as a as a performer or as an audience member that degree of, of uh, energy and, and pseudo insanity for three hours. I think what's interesting is when you think of that stereotype of the fish fan at fish shows is these people that are kind of like in a state of sort of euphoric high or bliss dancing to this. And I don't find much of this music to be danceable. Right. What is it that like at a live my, show? <laughs> that may have been because of my choices. Okay. They they are generally funkier, perhaps, than the music that I yeah. chose. I, I did choose one funk thing uh, in the second set, a uh, ghost, because I did want to represent that. But I would say, like, that's probably, like, a f- quarter of what they do is just kind of, like, deep pocket funk grooves. And that's been true since, you know, since about 97, when they kind of found what they called cow funk, like, funk played by white guys from Vermont, and they were called <laughs> cow funk. And it kind of reinvented their sound to, like, a more of a minimalistic approach. We do hear some of that, actually, on some of these songs. But, you know, the hippies find a way. <laughs> It's a real if you build it, they will jam kind of situation. Well, no, it's funny because I shot a wedding and it was at this place called Alton Jones, uh, which is owned by uh, the University of Rhode Island. And they would do weddings. And it's kind of like this has cabins and stuff like that. It's right on a lake. It's really pretty. I did this wedding there and they're like, oh, yeah, our friend's going to DJ and he's going to just play all jam bands. I'm like, what are these people going to do for two hours? And they danced. Yeah, man. And it was crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, they're not good dancers. A lot of swaying. A lot of looking at their hands and spinning around. Yeah, and like kind of like their heads up to the sky kind of thing. Sure. It was really goofy. And we did another wedding together, and they had a live band. Was it which, the String Cheese Incident? No, but they had members that have played with Fish. That's right. Dave Grippo on sax, who's yeah. a member of the Giant Country Horns, yeah. who toured with Fish uh, intermittently in the 90s. And the drummer was Russ Lawton, who is the drummer of Trey's band yeah. still. You know, to this day, they were um, so good, amazing yeah. dudes. That was one of my like. That was one of my like professional highlights. Yeah, was sitting at that table because we, you know, like when you're a vendor, you all sit at like the same table, the band and photographers, and so just being like, hey, so uh, you wrote fish songs, you know? Like <laughs> now, I didn't nerd out, but we had a nice conversation. If yeah, I remember, it was really sweet. Yeah, and like I could see that you were so excited. So it was just like, yeah, hey, you like. Don't worry too much about the photos. Just enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. And Russ Lawton was just so cool. And we exchanged information. I never did follow up nor see him uh, after. But uh, I remember like during the set as they were playing, he would like look to me and like point to me with his stick and be like, check it out and like do a new groove. He was He's such an incredible. amazing drummer. Yeah. And he was is the core rhythm section of Trey's solo band called Tab, a Trey Anastasio band, and uh, it's him and Tony Markellis on bass, and they wrote several grooves that became Fish songs. I didn't put any on this list, but like several of their late 90s tunes are based on grooves by that guy, so that's we got to talk about that, and it was actually, yeah, that was a really cool thing. I, I sometimes forget about that. So the next song is Fly Famous Mockingbird. <gasps> uh, yeah, uh, just to repeat my one-word note, it was nope. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean... The beginning is pretty goofy. Yeah. What is he? I, I like how he says. So he mentions it's soft spoken word, and he mentions that David Byrne himself is there, and he says, 
that weird dance that he used to do. <laughs> weird dance he used to do. Yeah, Trey watched a lot of Stop Making Sense. It's just so hokey. Right, and yeah. it's all improvised. Yeah, that's what I was curious. Is he making, does he repeat this, or does he do a different story? Oh, completely different every time. Like, always different. The reason he mentioned David Byrne is this is from Halloween 96. Where they played. All of Remain in Light. Yeah, okay. Yep. I, I, I figured there was some overlap there. But the underlying story is from a greater piece that's generally called Gamehenge. Their mythology. It's actually called The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday. And this is a song cycle, a concept album, a, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, that Trey wrote in the 80s, from which Fish still draws songs. Every night you'll hear a song from Gamehenge. They've performed it live in its entirety with narration maybe four times, but they haven't done it since 94. It's one of those things. Like, if you were at a show and they played Gamehenge, like today, 25 years later, like, it would be really like one of those epic fish moments but it's more of a tray thing than a band thing and I think that's part of the reason they don't do it um, but this is what I'm talking about this kind of thing which was written completely earnestly a tray used it actually as his senior thesis in college at Goddard College in Vermont like this crazy liberal college and it was just about you know song cycles and you know the emotional relationship to music whatever it was but he used a recording of this that he made that the band made as that thesis as the foundation for that thesis um some of the material is really i think this is a really good composition actually it's obviously minimal lyrically and stuff besides the narration but it does fit into the story arc of gamehenge which i won't describe because it's ridiculous i think the harmonies in this song would probably this is like an example of their, yeah. their singing is pretty weak here. right and that's page and mike singing not trey because yeah. Trey's kind of like busy playing crazy guitar things. And uh, yeah, I agree. The blend isn't quite right. But I think when the song picks up at about like five minutes 40, like the band really locks uh. in and it becomes a song. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, I think it's one of their most elegant and it's short. Like it's relatively short. Even with the narration, it's not super long. But it's one of the most elegant early compositions. Like it's proggy, but it's still very melodic to my ear. And I, I really like the full band arranging. That's one of the pleasant surprises that I had as I referenced earlier when I was listening to it. I was like, wow, I haven't like just listened to this in a while. Now Fish fans out there would say, how did you play Fly Famous Mockingbird without preceding it with Colonel Forbin's Ascent? Forbin's, <laughs> no, no, I know. I know that sounds so dorky, but it's always Forbin's Orbins in the Mockingbird. Like, they never just play this song. You can hear it comes out of something. Yeah. Like, but honestly, it was just because of time. You guys asked for close to an hour, and I was already pushing the limits of that with that stash jam. And so I said, you know, I got to lose Forbins. But that would give you a more complete picture of the story because that has, no, in the lyrics, he's describing the scene and what's happening to Colonel Forbin himself. I just appreciate that you put, you put it in the sequence where you did because, like I said, uh, the curtain was a really good entry point and I think had we had something like this earlier on it definitely would have colored my experience before actually getting to the rest of it so yeah, and right. I, I appreciate that it's in here because I think it's important that we sort of get all these different facets of the band uh, you know whether or not we appreciate them uh, or not it's still interesting but I'm like okay this is a, this is a part of fish that that I'm not into for sure
that feels like a completely separate thing from the first half of the song. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like two separate. Things. Yeah, yeah, and I it sort of. Uh, the first half really lost me and I was just kind of checked out by the time we got to it. I think that's understandable. <laughs> the yeah. first half is just really silly, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What's uh, funny is on a musical level, the Fly Famous Mockingbird, the actual vocal singing section, like that's a really beautiful piece of music, not particularly well performed. Yeah, yeah, because they bring it back in the end. They do, yes. Yeah. And, but at the beginning, like... He mentioned something about rocks crumbling, and you hear drums kind of like out yeah. of time, <laughs> and it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah. It, it, it it felt very like Spinal Tap jazz odyssey. <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, that's a great point of comparison. And these guys, you know, they have a really good sense of humor as a band and as humans. Like these are just some of the funniest, like just their banter with each other. And I should say. They don't talk live outside of narration. They're never like, hey, thank you, Providence. Never. They'll say, we'll be back in 15 minutes. Jeez. Thanks, guys. Bow out. The only time they ever really talk, I mean, there are exceptions, but the only time they ever really talk is in narration, such as what is in Fly Famous Mockingbird. And that's improvised. And the band's just kind of hearing it and going, all right, I don't know where you're going. And some of those are hilarious. Some of them are cringe. Like, they're, they're all over the place, but... It's another form of improv, and actually, Trey talks about Second City as being kind of like a huge influence. Of course, the comedy troupe from Chicago that birthed so many of the great comedy minds of the last 45, 50 years. Uh, maybe even more, actually, going back to Alan Arkin and stuff was like, you know, oh, yeah. weirdly yeah. enough. And we always think of how funny he is. But <laughs> yeah, real cut up in Glengarry Glenrock. <laughs> That's right. Wait, was pretty funny, was though. That accent, right? That can't be real. Was he in Glengarry? He was. Yeah, no, and, and the improv thing definitely uh, appealed to me as well. I've been doing improv for the last couple of years and, and sort of, like, okay, so like musically, you know, there's a lot of sort of finding the game with the other musician and, and sort of getting lost and finding your way back to where you started. And so I can appreciate that, but uh, I don't really care about Colonel Forbin or whatever the fuck he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not for me. So <laughs> the next song is called Maze and it's from Chicago. In uh, 1994. Yeah. I really like this one. Oh, cool. Really like this one. This is probably the most straightforward rock song of this list. Yeah, there's the stuff at the beginning kind of feels a little like the talking heads. And this is just like let them rip. Yeah, and then the bass gets kind of sinister, like kind of (laughs) towards the back half. Yeah. (laughs) Later. (laughs) Later. And this is one that's like definitely a type one jam. They almost always stick to the script, but it's just a matter of how hard is it going to peak and how long is it going to go? And this, you know, this version is maybe 12 minutes or something. It's generally between nine and 14 minutes. It won't. I I was just literally about to say it won't generally go too long. (laughs) Yeah, that's relative in this conversation. (laughs) And there is a studio version of this, which is on the album Rift from 1993. I should point out some of Fish's best material and best songs and of course that's subjective you're like they have that but uh, you know for fish are not even on records like some of their most the curtain has never been on a record like no studio version of it exists there's no studio version of game henge at all like of the songs we've heard half of them aren't even on records you know so that's something to keep in mind with them it's so interesting the way you talk about them because it almost feels like there's so many caveats for you of just like yeah I, I get this and I don't like this and I don't like this but I do like this this yeah. and this and so it's interesting to hear you talk about a band in that context and I'm not saying that when I listen to something or I love something that I'm in 100% yeah. I love Radiohead but there are even some moments where I'm just like oh I I'm not sure if that worked or or whatever. So, But it feels even more so (laughs) with the way you talk about fish. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's the byproduct of having so many different colors 
they're painting with a really colorful palette. Radiohead does that too, but it all kind of always sounds like Radiohead. But between Fish's capacity for playing covers of a, liver, a lot of different styles and writing in a lot of different styles and being a band for a really long time with so many diverse influences, you're not going to like everything, even within a song, as, as I said. And I love the way that Fish is a band, but I don't, I don't always love their music. Yeah, well, I think it's great because there are so much conversations about not just music, but movies and TV and everything, that's just all absolutes. It's either the oh. greatest thing imaginable or this thing is just the worst thing ever. So it's nice to see something that's just like, for you, sort of lives in this, like you do love it, but like you understand its faults, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. While we were listening and, and sort of my, the big research I did for this was um, I read a book written by Nathan Rabin, ah. who a former uh, AV Club uh, writer. It was called You Don't Know Me But You Don't Like Me, Fish, Insane, Clown Posse, and My Misadventures with Two of Music's Most Maligned Tribes. I can't exactly recommend the book. It's not great. <laughs> um, oh, not great because of the writing? or uh, It takes, it takes a, a weird turn. It, it feels like um, it, it's part memoir, part sort of... Uh, you know, investigative and immersive look into both two very kind of polarizing groups. Anyway, that's not here or there. There is a quote that uh, I, I pulled from the book and I think sort of aligns with what we're talking about here. He says, the pleasant Friday in the country vibe underlines the reassuring truth that there was absolutely nothing cool about fish in 2011. They had become a quintessential geek fixation in that they appealed almost exclusively to a small but fiercely committed sub subsection of the populace that was knowledgeable and invested in the group to an almost unhealthy degree. They meant nothing to the vast majority of the population. Three decades on, Fish fans still believe with justification that the band was still their own special thing, that it belonged to them and not to the world at large. There is a beauty and a purity that comes with never making it to the mainstream, with never quite breaking through, either by design or by happenstance. The fact that it belongs so completely to the fans means that they really have dictated the conversation. And it is refreshing to see that there can be nuance and that fish fans, uh, it's not one camp or another. I can't imagine a world where you go to a fish show and you're like, Trey just ruined my childhood. I can't believe he just remade that song like that. <laughs> there, there's a sort of willingness to engage with a, a push and a pull. That evolution is is inevitable. That change is going to happen. That you're not going to like it, but there's so much of it that the next thing could sort of negate any uh, ill will you have about what they might have done to a song you like. Do you think that exists because they're still sort of they're popular, but it's still like. Yeah, I mean they're not on the radio. No. Their Spotify numbers are numbers are super low. Like yeah. it's a very specific thing. Yet they can sell out Madison Square Garden seventeen times in a year. Because a lot of those people are going to go to the next show in Boston. Yeah, right? it's, yeah. It's well, just that, a lot that of the same helps. People. I guess it is a lot of the same people. And weirdly, the kind of pushback and the blowback from fans is when they're not evolving enough. Is when they don't go as deep as the fans think they could have. There is pushback. Well, yeah, it's like. They get to a nice space within a song, and all of a sudden it's like ripcorded, as they call it, for something else. Uh, we're losing them. Go, you know. And the fans, the real hardcore fans, the most vocal ones, I recognize it could be a very vocal minority, but are like. It usually is. Yeah. Especially online. It's like, oh no, you had something there. Like, just go deeper. I don't care if you don't play a song for another 18 minutes, just keep going. You know, find something new here, because you're going. And I'm, I'm like this, you know, I see a lot of concerts, like, 
and this is part of what I love about fish, you get the sincere sensation that you're seeing something that has never happened before and will probably never happen again right there in that moment. That's why it's kind of like a sporting event. It's following a sports team. It's like, this is it. I'm here for the game. And like, there's no score at the end of a fish show, but there like kind of is, you know what I mean? It's like, was that a win? Was that a loss? You know, and you'll find moments of loss within the best shows ever. You'll be like, oh, I I forgot they played that song. Ooh, they really botched the, you know, the the lick in that thing. That's part of what comes with it. And Matt, we were, the one thing we talked about in the text was, man, they were surprisingly sloppy. And I kind of spoke to it being a byproduct of having a ton of material (laughs) and a lot of it being very complex, you know, and only playing it. And and the thing with Fish too, they change their set list every show. They don't have a set list. They're aware of what they just played the night before, maybe the previous couple nights. They have maybe a song list of like available tunes. But we're talking hundreds of songs. Roughly how many songs do you think they have and how frequently do they repeat things right. throughout like so for instance, summer twenty seventeen, landmark event you know, in the history of this band, they played 13 shows at Madison Square Garden over the course of two and a half weeks. They called it the Baker's Dozen. It's a concept they actually had. Originally, they were going to do it at the Dunkin' Donuts Center, like, when they're, you know, here in Providence, the Providence Civic Center, um, because they thought that'd be funny. And so what they did was, for 13 shows, every night was a different donut theme. And they partnered with a don- with a bakery out of Philadelphia, and they would make specific donuts. You know, there's, you know, chocolate glaze night, and there's jam-filled night. You know, that was probably going to be a cool night. And so over the course of those 13 shows, they didn't tell anyone that, you know, none of us knew. And I went to one of these shows. It was Lemon uh, Night, and they actually covered everything in its right place. First time they ever covered Radiohead. And it was terrible. But the the Fisherman, the drummer, sang it, actually. And Trey used the chaos pad, like everything. They, like, did it up. But when Paige hit those first notes, it was just like, (gasps) oh. They're playing Radiohead, and it's yesterday I woke up sucking on lemon, you know? So it was just the perfect. They so they would play they, songs related to the theme. They didn't play Lemon by U2? I wish they had, but they did not. They did do a Blind Lemon Jefferson song as well. <laughs> That's what they <laughs> opened with. See that my grave is kept clean. But over the course of 13 nights, they did not repeat one song. 13 shows of three hours each at the world's most famous venue, and they did not repeat a song. That was 237 songs. Wow. And they probably learned 20-plus tunes of new material to accommodate the themed nights, like, alone. You know, like, they did Powderfinger on Powder Donut Night by uh, by Neil Young. Like, they did various um, uh, acapella renditions. They did White Winter, Winter Hymnal as well on Powder Night. And they did, on Donut Hole Night, they did Oh Holy Night acapella in, like, this weird psychedelic jam in a mic group. It was, like, one of the most dark. You would love it, Matt, actually. <laughs> like, you'd be like, whoa, that actually works. Um, so that speaks to the amount of material and in a two and a half week span, that many songs of, and you're hearing this listeners, if you've never heard fish, you're hearing these songs. These are not easy songs. It's not like, you know, it's not sweater song by Weezer over here. It's, these are real compositions. So in a year they'll play over 300. I think that's their, their biggest year of unique songs was 300. And it was, I believe that was 2009. They may have surpassed it since. So, like, they pulled some deep jams. So I would say something like that, you know, in the 300 area. But to date, I mean, probably a 1,000 unique songs between originals and covers and one-off things. And I will say, too, to give them some indie street cred, 
they love indie rock and they love cool music, whether it's classic rock or modern rock. And they've covered things such as Gold Sounds by Pavement, In an Airplane Over the Sea, Golden Age by TV on the Radio has become one of their big jam vehicles of late. They did Energy by Apples and Stereo, like Rhinoceros by Smashing Pumpkins, Cannonball by The Breeders. Like they love modern rock. And one of Trey's favorite records of all time is Wowie Zowie by Pavement. And in fact, they started working with that producer, Bryce Goggin, as a result. Great record. It's a great record, yeah. So, you know, like, it's just they love everything about music, and so they're always just pulling out material that maybe they'll play once, you know, yeah. but that creates a pretty big number of songs. So speaking of covers, um, the the first song on the next playlist you made for us was a cover of Talking Heads' uh, Cross-Eyed and Painless. Why why that cover? Why, like, what was the, the, the sort of thought process here? Because they do... They have uh, an extensive repertoire of, of other bands' music. So why did I choose that? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, it's my favorite cover that they do. I've never seen it live, actually, in over I, I, in over 20 shows. That sounds like a lot of shows for a Fish fan. It's like, this guy's a noob. Why is he talking about Fish? It's true. I don't go on tour with Fish. Like, you know, I, I just I can't do that. It's just not my life. Well, I think the ability to speak so that um, that educated, well-to-do Northeastern white audience you were speaking of earlier. I mean, to be able to pack up for a summer and be like, I'm just going to follow this band around and then go right back to my law firm in the fall. Yeah, yeah. That, that was never going to be me. I am seeing them a couple of times this summer, uh, which, you know, I'm excited about, but it, it's exhausting. It's it's still going to a big concert with a lot of, you know, smelly people. It's, uh, you know, they still smell. They may look great. They may have money, but they, they still they stink. They stink. Why this song? So this is uh, this version is from Coral Sky, which was an official release. They I believe it was from November 2nd, 96. This is two nights after they covered the entirety of the Talking Heads Remain in Light record, which is fitting into a tradition that they established a couple years earlier in 1994 where on Halloween, instead of dressing up in costumes, they would dress up as a musical costume, meaning they would cover an entire record by an artist they loved. The first one they did was the White Album. The next year they did Quadrophenia. They did the whole White Album? Yes. Even Revolution Number 9? Yes. Jesus Christ. And when the and We Become Naked line happened, Fishman came out from behind the drums. He wears a dress. He, he <laughs> went out there and the We Become Naked, and he just took off his dress and ran around the stage naked. This was in Glen Falls, New York in uh, 94, a Halloween night. They've covered some really great records through the years. They don't do it every Halloween, but this one is the record, Remain in Light, which is a great record Brian Eno produced. I know Matt loves this album. Do you, do you know this record to begin yeah. with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it influenced their music going forward more than any other of these covers. Sometimes it was just, cool, the White Album, great. And occasionally they'll whip out like Cry Baby Cry or something. And you're like, oh, cool, back in the USSR. Actually, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey would get played more than any of them, weirdly. <laughs> but that's a great chant. That's it like is. a great song like for a rock band it's to play. Fun. That's one that's like, man, if the Beatles played that live, you know what I mean? It's a shame they weren't gigging anymore. Too bad they broke up. Too bad the Beatles died. <laughs> Half of them. Yeah, well, you know, the ones that matter. No. Oh. oh. Do you, did I ever tell you that? How our buddy, I won't, I won't say his name, but he, he pointed out, I heard him point out once, he's like, isn't it a shame that the Beatles are dying in entirely the wrong order? <laughs> no, I, I, th- I think I've said before, it'll be... Um, a testament to the cruelty of the universe that Ringo will be the last surviving Beatle. <laughs> He's the oldest Beatle, too. It just doesn't make sense. He could grow a beard way earlier than those other guys. Anyway. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> but this album and its grooves and its singing... 
totally influenced the music going forward. And we're going to hear a song that it influenced a, a little later. The succeeding album called Story of the Ghost and the succeeding tour in 97 and then into 98, they really started playing more groove-oriented music. And this was the record that made them do that. This version is from the first show after that performance. Now, typically, they would not play the same song two shows in a row. They, they don't do that. They were just so excited about it. And they had a percussionist with them named Carl Perazzo, who actually, you know, it's funny, Grippo, the guy, the sax player from the wedding, he was on the Remain in Light. Like, he's in the horn section because they needed to extend the band to get the sounds in uh, the arrangements, right? But so they still, the percussionist stayed on with him. He's from Santana's band. And I think they were just excited to utilize him. And you can hear Trey at the beginning of the track saying like, uh, in this open set too, saying like, all right, you want to do Cross and Painless? You know, the one, and he's singing it to them. Duh, duh, duh. You know, yeah, you and you do that. It in the yeah, I noticed, I noticed that. So he was just, exp so there was a, a guest drummer. I guess drummer, but it wasn't, it was to the band. That's the thing. Because they had just played it. They had learned the eight songs from the record. And it's not like they knew them super well. They they were binging those songs. And like up until like rehearsal that morning, Trey was like, I don't know if we got it, but <laughs> we're playing tonight. Yeah, because that, I, I did note that, because it, it sounds like Trey knows the song and nobody else does. <laughs> and I'm like, did he just kind of like hum <laughs> a part and then they nailed it? That's Cause... effectively it. He was like reminding them of the song. Wow. All right. But thankfully, the drummer, Fishman, who sings this one, knew the words, which is actually kind of impressive. <laughs> you know, that, you know, but they just played it. And this one has stayed in their repertoire. It's it's still played every tour multiple times. And it's created some of the greatest jams ever. And this is a jam. I, I actually had never listened to Coral Sky. It's just 96 isn't considered a great year for Fish's music. So it's not one that I've listened to much beyond, you know, the, the Remain in Light set, for instance. I love that set. And I was blown away by this jam. I just think it's wild. Yeah, I I love so you know, obviously it's the Talking Heads song, and they're it's pretty accurate. I think he vocalizes it pretty yeah, well. They sound good. Yeah, and then it breaks out into a jam, and then half. So it's, this is like a twenty-four minute. It's song. a big boy. <laughs> and halfway through, they just kind of lock into the do 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 do, yeah. and he stays on there. But then he starts v making variations to the bass while Trey is just kind of doing his own thing and the bass starts to get sinister really sinister really kind of dark and then sort of minimal and i i really like it it's again it, it kind of sounds like a lot of kraut rock it kind of sounds it like can and uh, faust and those kind of german bands from the 70s and it's weird and noisy and and the, the type of stuff that i gravitate towards and i know one of the first things when we started listening to these lists uh Tony, you had said to me like, oh, here's this great talking head song and then it just keeps going. Yeah. Do, do you I, still feel that way? Yeah, or? I do. Uh, I stand by my note that it's downhill after 11 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, see, that's where it goes uphill for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so I, I did you know, like the, the studio cut of this song is about like five minutes talking head stretches it out to about seven and change maybe close to eight on uh, stop making sense. I don't know if we need more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like a lot of stuff that is repetitious. Yeah. That slowly evolves over a long period of time. This is a patient jam yeah. in its way. It takes its time, and I completely recognize why that wouldn't be for, like, everyone. What I think I like about it, too, is they just debuted this song, I think, the night they played it, uh, you know, on the Halloween set. They maybe did a nine-minute version of it. Pretty tight by Fish Standards. Two nights later, 
they're playing a 24-minute version that sounds nothing like this. Like, they're already seeing, where can this take us? You know what I mean? And I think this version alone is what made them keep it in their repertoire. They're like, all right, this this song, you know? This is how we want to sound for a while. And it totally stayed in their, in their skin and, and in their bones. And I think that example um, kind of sums up what gravitates people to the band, is that they can take something as seemingly simple as a, a you know, composed six minutes of music and find ways to explore it for however long they feel they need to. And the song's one chord. I mean, the whole song is just like a B minor chord, basically. You know, that's that like as written, that's all it is. It's really the vocals are the only thing that changes. Adrian Ballou's guitar, like on the on the actual recording. But like, that's exactly what if you want to talk about dancing to fish, it's like one chord vamps you know with stuff happening over the top whether it be a killer guitar solo or synthesizers or or clavinet or you know all of these loops that trey's bringing in uh and kind of painting these textures on top of the groove but that has a lot of similarity with a lot of uh experimental electronic music yep. and a lot of techno where it just kind of locks into a groove with some subtle variations and and that's obviously super danceable lots of big dance things are based around that kind of music so I guess I kind of answered my own question with that. <laughs> with that. Um, but the next song is called What's the Use? Uh, and that is from Boise State University Pavilion in Boise, Idaho in, from 1999. That's the same uh, show as The Curtain, I believe, is from. Yeah. yeah. That official release, yeah. I think this is probably my favorite of all I knew all it would these. be. I'm so glad. I knew it would yeah. be. I mean, it, this is just so Pink Floyd-y. It is. And it's pretty. It's spacious. It doesn't overdo a lot of the solo stuff. Because no. um, what he does with the solo is like what uh, Gilmore does uh, from Pink Floyd, and it's just more about the melody than it is about what he's capable of on the guitar. And the band kind of allows space for everyone to kind of sit back, let the tempo kind of lay back a bit and, and, and allow the keys to kind of fill in and organ and stuff. And yeah. it's a little darker and somber at first, and then it kind of gives way, and it's sort of hopeful in the back half, and there's no singing so I was gonna say you left out the big part. This is instrumental, yeah, so of course it's yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, I got another big Ween vibe from this too. So really? it's sort of uh, I wow. should listen to more Ween. Shit. I really like that a lot. Um, yeah, and it's even the kind of the Gilmore t uh, tone there with like that univibe pedal and just the yeah. way it's suddenly modulated. And then it's got that kind of spacious tone that kind of carries throughout the whole yes. song. So that was a period where Trey was using a boomerang. He still does from time to time, but like particularly 98, 99, 2000, he was using a boomerang uh loop pedal and just not using it for phrases or anything just using it for atmosphere so we do these drops pew, pew, 
and you'll hear it on maybe maybe Ghost has it too. But that was big in this era, and it's really cool because it doesn't have to be in time or anything. It's just kind of there. And Paige is doing those. Uh, Paige, the piano player, um, is uh, is doing a lot of like synthesizer drops, like. You know, ah, it's just so patient. When the band's patient, they're my favorite. Do you dig this one? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I thought I thought I've established that I'm, I'm into this one. <laughs> oh, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It, well, you know, uh, it was it was like 20 minutes ago. We seem to be. No, it wasn't 20 minutes. <laughs> no, ago. We just got the Ween. We thing, just got lost in the jam, man. <laughs> and this was actually on a record called the Sicket Disc, uh, which was something that they did. It was just instrumental improvisations that they recorded recorded by John Sickett who uh, is like produced like washing machine by uh, Sonic Youth and I think was you know working with Andy Wallace uh, who produced who of course mixed Nevermind and produced Soup by Blind Melon and all this stuff he produced Story of the Ghost which is the record that came out around the same time in 1998 and uh, a lot of the songs from that record are really amazing but they were really just kind of studio improvs that they were like, eh, th- there's something here. Paige went through them and said, I think this is something, this is something, and this was one of those. Uh, and then they actually put lyrics over it, and it didn't work at all. I heard like a really bad bootleg demo of it, and I was like, I'm glad they kept it instrumental because yeah. it's one of their best melodies ever, and it's not sung. So, Tony, now that you've had a chance to actually listen to Fish going forward, do you think you'll ever listen to them again? Or is this it for you? Or was it a good experience? Or in between? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that I will necessarily seek it out, um, but I don't have an aversion to it, if that makes sense. Um, Like I sort of suggested earlier, I I feel like I had an opinion about Fish going into this experiment uh, that I feel like I I debunked to an extent. I get it. I understand the appeal. And there's a lot of it that I liked here. Uh, But at the end of the day, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really check the boxes for me. Um, But that said, if, if, you know, I happen to be hanging out with somebody and it comes on, I'm not going to roll my eyes and, you know, wish they put something else on. I was into some of it. I really wasn't into other parts of it. But, um, yeah, it's just just not for me. But I know that now. And I think I, I... I feel better having formed a real opinion and, and given it a college try. I mean, I listened to these playlists you made us uh, countless times. I mean, it's really all I've been listening to the last couple of weeks. And some of the songs really got into my head and I, I catch myself sort of humming them. And so, I mean, that's that says a lot right there. I mean, it's it's would, good music. It's just. Uh, would you ever go to a fish show? Ooh, you know, maybe I, I'd be interested in seeing that part of the experience as well. As I said earlier, the drugs didn't necessarily help. I, mm-hmm. I did uh, cross state lines to get some some provisions from Massachusetts. Now that that's uh, on the table, and uh, yeah, it didn't didn't enhance the experience. But again, I think there's that communal element of of feeding. You know, the way the band will feed off the crowd, the the crowd feeding off itself, and sort of getting caught up in it. It's also an expensive uh, experiment. Yeah, uh, for sure. The drugs or the tickets? oh no, the tickets. <laughs> You're like, oh, both, but the drugs are worth it. (laughs) What he said. Matt, how about you? Yeah, I enjoyed a lot of this. There was some stuff that, again, I was just like, oh, this is goofy. Yeah, what was the thing that you were most turned off by? That, like, if I had put it on first or just said, you'll love this, and you heard it, you're like, well. I think the second set list that you shared, some of the more jammy stuff, sometimes I'm just like, "Uh, there are moments that just feel like, oh, we can do this, and now we can do this, and now we can do this. Right. And it's a little too much. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if they ever justify it for me. You know, like, I like things 
that even if they're expansive and large, that they feel like there's this sort of like we're trying to wrestle control with this. And I think there are moments in these jams that just feel like jams for lack of a better word. Right. They're not as like I need those moments of either total chaos or hooks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's kind of where I sort of live. So sometimes when it's just a lot of soloing and like showmanship, then I'm kind of like, okay, I understand what you're doing, but this isn't necessarily necessarily for me. There are moments that feel kind of like that slick, funky kind of staccato jazzy stuff that there are other bands that do that, I think, way better. Because right. to me, they just sound like they have great chops <laughs> and I'm missing some sort of feel there. Sure. Yeah. It's almost like... Uh... I remember my guitar teacher when I was in high school was like, you got to listen to Dream Theater. They're so good. And I'm like, but is there more than them just being good? Because like <laughs> right. that technical proficiency only goes so yeah. far. And sometimes it can be really off-putting. Yeah, for sure. And it's the same thing with Yes, which I've compared them to a number of times, is that some of their later albums are just a little, they're, they're too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? No, uh, I mean, uh, and Fish would agree with you. They said the thing that we're the least good at is playing less is, yeah. it, you know what I mean? It's just letting it happen. Sure, sure. There's a documentary about them called Bittersweet Motel that was filmed in like 97, 98. Uh, mostly 97. And uh, they're like getting off stage and they're just all excited. They had like a pretty good show. And they're like, man, you, we're so funky. We sound like James Brown on his worst night. Like on his worst night. They're like, that's it. Our best, our absolute best is James Brown on his worst sure. night. They know. That's good though. They know. But it's hard to listen to a song and get self-awareness yeah you know? oh yeah no yeah how would you ever know again that's part of the mythology of the band it's and it's interesting to have that sort of baseline like oh well you have to understand that they're in on the joke right which is hard to tell when you're just listening to music yeah knowing knowing the language understanding what page they're on and sort of getting on that wavelength there's a yeah. There's a lot of history here to sort of to oh, familiarize yourself with. This yeah. is like as deep as like the Marvel comics we were talking about and just as weird and, and, <laughs> and also just as earnest and stupid. Oh, yeah. Because we, we did an episode on the Fantastic Four comics and we were like, a lot of this is just so dopey, mm. but we you embrace it because it feels so sincere. And I do see a lot of that. I hear a lot of that yeah. in this. There's definitely no cynicism here. Yeah. I think going forward, I have you as a sort of vessel into it so if you were to share stuff with me i'd mm -hmm. be like oh yeah i'll give that a listen because i know like where trey's it's coming new from. right honestly the ghost of the forest record by trey is, yeah you'd probably really dig the sound it's a good good sound of record on my own i don't know if i'm actively because it feels like if i wanted to really continue pursuing this it would require a lot of work and i don't know <laughs> if i'm invested in them in that, in right. that level yeah. but if you were to say like oh i just came across this live set give this a listen, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this. Yeah, yeah. So, and, 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 and I mentioned to you too about, I would never go to a live show, even if it was me and Tony going to a live show. I don't know if that's the same experience as going to a live show with you. Right. You know, because I think I, I, your history of it and, 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 and your passion for it, I think would make it an interesting experience. Whereas I think if it was Tony, I, it'd just be Statler and Waldorf from the Jesus. Muppets. Uh, yep. You know? More or less. <laughs> Eating popcorn and talking shit. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, the door is closed, but it's not locked. Okay. So. Yeah. There you go. Cool. Yeah. To me, the door is open, but I'm sitting on the couch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come but on. I'm, come on in if you want. But. But I'm 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 watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. So. 
Chris, on our podcast, we make recommendations based off of whatever subject that we're talking about. Do you have any recommendations for someone that wants to follow the fish rabbit hole, I guess? I do, for sure. And they're all podcast related. Oh, nice. Okay. So for sheer entertainment value, there is a podcast called Analyze Fish with Scott Ackerman of Comedy Bang Bang and the late Harris Whittles, who was a big fish head, like big time, way bigger than I am. Big fish nerd, and uh, and the whole premise was basically this: like try, Harris trying to get Scott Ackerman to like fish. And actually, Rabin was on there. Uh, uh, they had a lot, on a lot of great guests. Actually, Tom Sharpling went on an episode, which was kind of amazing. Wow. Uh, but yeah, everyone should probably listen to that. That's a really funny, funny way into fish. Isn't there an episode where he goes to a show with Scott and, and Scott does drugs? Yes, for the first time or like mushrooms? Yeah, he he, he dropped a bean. He dropped. He took some Molly, I think, and and it didn't take. Well, no spoiler alert. Okay. but he had a great experience. It's really funny episode because they record at the show and then they kind of edit it together they did that twice actually yeah they later went with paul f tompkins to a show as well at at the the hollywood bowl i might listen to it now yeah Uh, analyze fish uh, is a great great listen and then there's some as you can imagine with a nerdy fan base there are some really good fish podcasts out there the two that i think you would be most interested in one is called beyond the pond where two really smart music fans pick a different jam every week or every other week but they've been doing a lot more and talk about that jam talk about the context the tour blah blah and then they talk about two different topics that are spun off of that jam and introduce bands that the jam reminds them of and these guys have really good taste in music like literally the last episode was about a, a late 90s jam and they talked about Beck Midnight Vultures Olivia Tremor Control like all of these really kind of amazing bands I was like man Matt would love this podcast this is like so many bands that Matt loves but like every episode's like that and they've had really good interviews with like Strand of Oaks was on there the dude from Strand of Oaks and they love War on Drugs like all the modern indie stuff Animal Collective so it's a really cool in because it's like here's this jam this is Shoegaze Here's an episode about shoegaze music. Boom. And and it's so it's it's a really cool thing, even if that you're not a fan of good. fish. Yeah. And these guys are good. It's not like the best sounding podcast. That's my only issue with it, but the content's ridiculous. And then there's one by Tom Marshall, who we mentioned him earlier, but he's the lyricist of a fish, of most of Fish's material. And he's done some episodes where he talks to Trey, which is awesome because it's just two old friends talking and it's just so kind of un- you know, just unfiltered. And he's been doing episodes lately breaking down lyrics to his songs based on, you know, fan requests. Like, oh, talk about this, talk about this. And so he'll do like in-depth play demos, play, you know, the original writing sessions and stuff. Those are great episodes just about the creative process. So that's called Under the Scales with Tom Marshalls and with Tom Marshalls, just singular, just one, just one Tom Marshall and Beyond the Pond. Tony? Uh, Well, I guess just because this is, I guess, directly... Uh, for Chris, since uh, he's curious about Ween, since it came up so much, um, their live at Stubbs uh, recording is it's a great uh, showcase of, of their live energy. I would say The Mollusk and, let's see, I'll throw Quebec out there. I would check those albums out. And like I said, sort of off mic earlier, uh, once they sort of grew past the Push the Little Daisies uh, weird goofy sounding era of ween which i love their sort of middle era is fantastic and if if you're listening and you like fish and want to go beyond roses are free um those are my picks right on i'm going to recommend a band that as far as i know i'm the only person that loves them unabashedly usually when i mention this band to other people they're like oh i like the first record then i don't know what they did but i've Loved all of their records. I heard they might be coming back, and that's the Mars Volta. 
Wow. And I got I, there's a lot of similarities between them and Fish. Um, they have 20 minute tracks. Their live stuff kind of does you know they do whatever they want. They're improvising a lot in live stuff. They're very self-indulgent. There's mythology based around their songs, but uh, it's more proggy, probably more aggressive. And I think their singer is one of the more idiosyncratic singers of the past like 20 years. Uh, and I think he's kind of taken for granted. Uh, and I think they're just always been an interesting band. And if you could get through some of their self-indulgences, that there's a lot uh, of rewarding stuff there. Yeah, you know, and, and not unlike Fish, I found their fans to be kind of off-putting in college, which is why I sort of <laughs> kept Mars Volta at an arm's length. So. Sure. Being as how I'm the only fan of the band that I'm aware of, and I've kind of stayed clear of any of the fandom online, then that clearly, clearly they're dicks. <laughs> yeah, because I'm an asshole. Tony, what are we talking about next time? Uh, next time we're going to be talking about A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Fantasy novel. Um, I'm excited. Um, yeah, me too. Read through it for the first time for this. I've read some of her sci-fi stuff. I but, have too. Um, yeah, really looking forward to talking about it. Terrific. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Chris. Wait, first, before yeah, we kick him sorry. out of here, uh, where can people find... Uh, your oh. podcast. Let's let's get your plug in. Right. So the the, the Weezer podcast is, is called Weez Talking Weez to Thee. There's a lot of apostrophes. There's a lot of there's a number two in there. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter at Weez Talking Weez. Uh, no apostrophes. W e z talking with no g. W e e z. That made sense to everyone. And uh, yeah, and my name's Christopher Nod, and I make music as well. So you can look that up. Awesome. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll link to the podcast. We'll also share a link to the playlists that you put together for us for the show. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at What Did We Miss. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And thanks, as always, to the What Share Writers Club for putting us up for another week. All right, That's talk it. to you next time. See ya. Thanks. <laughs>